We are at the beginning of a school year like none other. Schools closed down in March, and at-home learning took over for the rest of last school year. Parents were confronted with taking over the responsibilities of teachers with support from online tools. And children are now either going back to school or continuing with remote learning. So this seems like an opportune moment to reflect on what we have learned about educating our children, the role that technology can play, as well as its limits, and the values that can guide technological choices in our school systems into the future. You are listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. This episode is part of the mini-series Rebuilding Together, where we reflect on the principles that can help us to build a post-pandemic society. This conversation features Jeff Cameron talking with Taban Behin, a PhD student at the University of Victoria, Brian Dykma, Vice President of CARDIS, and Hoda Farmanpour, PhD student at the University of Toronto. They discuss how we should think about the nature of technology and its relationship to the education of young people. So I'm really delighted to be joined on this episode of The Public Discourse by Hoda Farmanpour, Taban Behin, and Brian Dykma to talk through some of these issues. Uh, so before we start, could you each briefly introduce yourselves, starting with Taban? Sure. My name is Taban Behin, and I'm first and foremost a mother of two children who are ages 11 and 9. Um, I'm also a PhD student in the Social Dimensions of Health program at the University of Victoria. So in light of this, maybe I'd like to acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen-speaking peoples on whose traditional territories the university stands, and the Sangis, Esquimalt, and the West Sainik peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. Um, so I also have the bounty of being part of a technology research lab based out of Vancouver, and it's composed of a group of researchers who are collaborating on an emerging program that aims to examine more closely the relationship between digital tools and social transformation. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us, Taban. Uh, Brian, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I'm honored to be here, and I'm really, really grateful for the invitation and, and to meet with you, Taban, and, and Hoda as well. It's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, my name is Brian Dykema. I'm uh, a father of four. Uh, we have twin uh, twin boys who are 13, a 10-year-old boy, uh, and an 8-year-old girl. So that's the range from uh, grade 3 to grade 8. Um, uh, uh, so that's how, that's my primary interest in education and, and in technology. Um, I may be a bit of an odd duck in that uh, my own personal education sort of history involves small independent schools, large public schools, and back to small uh, independent universities. And the same story is true for my children. Um, my day job, uh, the job that allows me to get paid and provides me with great amounts of satisfaction and meaning is with a think tank called CARDIS, uh, which looks at uh, what... At social architecture, our goal is to renew Canada's social architecture. And by that, we mean um, the, the sort of thick web of relationships that take place between individuals, the communities, and the vast array of institutions that we spend most of our time with. So typically in public debates, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about what the government should do or shouldn't do, uh, what the market should do or shouldn't do. And often those are the sort of the two big elephants bashing around in the room. But in the meantime, everybody is trying to go to work uh, with their families, at their church, their mosque, their synagogue, their temple, 
They're meeting with neighborhood associations, they're trading and so on. Um, and we're interested in that part of civil society and particularly how education happens in those places uh, or doesn't. And so we have an interest in, in, the, in the realm of education uh, from a public policy level, but particularly insofar as how does it actually emerge and arise out of, um, out of civil society, out of communities themselves. And um, I think this is an excellent opportunity to talk about that and the role of technology uh, in, the, in the midst of that. So thank you. I'm so glad you could join us, Brian. Thank you. Um, Hoda, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Hoda Farmanpour. Uh, I am also a parent of uh, two young children, an almost three and an almost uh, six-year-old. Uh, I live in Toronto and I'm currently also a PhD student at OISE, which is uh, the University of Toronto School of, of Education. And uh, the department that I'm in is in the Adult Education and Community Development uh, Program, which is in the learning higher and adult education department. And so my current area of focus for my research concerns with the school to work transition of young people. And in particular right now, looking at the relationship and the connection between um, employment, young people and community well-being. So that's what I'm looking at now. Well, as the father of two young children and also someone who's been following this whole evolution uh, in how education is being delivered and conceived of over the last six months. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to the three of you about these questions, about how the pandemic itself has helped to us to think about the principles that should be guiding the way we think about education, the role that technology plays in that process. And you've all mentioned the role that the community plays and that family plays, and that's another important dimension that uh, we want to get to today. I, I wonder if we could start with you, Taban. You're part of a research group that's thinking about how technology can be designed to enable populations to grow and develop. Could you point us to some of the values and principles that can guide our thinking about the use of technology in schooling? Sure. No, I, I think this is certainly a foundational question for which I actually welcome the input of others as well. There's a lot here to perhaps explore. But maybe the first thing that comes to mind is I'll share a bit of my understanding of the terms being used, um, terms such as technology and schooling. And from there, maybe bring to light some fundamental principles and values related to the use of technology in schooling, like you've asked. Um, so, for instance, we learned as a lab that the term technology may mean different things to different people. So it seems that the concept of technology embraces far more than just gadgets. It includes simple tools, um, machines, techniques, systems, procedures and methods of organization as well. So like one example of technology is even as simple as writing, you know, in fact, actually in referencing to writing, Plato expressed his concern that it might cause human beings to lose their memories. That was one of the things that Plato was concerned about that technology. So you could see that, like, in a sense, the technology is is a fruit of science. And that's maybe where um, I think for the lab, the principle of the harmony of science and religion comes into play. Um, so we recognize as a research group that science and religion are two complementary systems of knowledge um, that have guided humanity's development. So while we recognize that science and religion have more often than not been historically held in conflict with each other, 
in their truest forms taken together, science and religion have provided the foundational principles by which individuals, communities, and institutions can organize and evolve over time. Um, so if, if technology is actually one of the fruits of science as we see it, um, it seems that it would be helpful then that it is in harmony with morality or our values, which is a fruit of religion. So in terms of like the other aspect, the other term that was used was um, around schooling. If we say, um, if we're referencing schooling, I, I'm assuming we're referring to like the institutionalized education of children. Um, so at the heart of schooling then, I think, is education, right? So here's where the principle, I think, of universal education seems to be a useful one to reflect a bit more on. So simply put, I think if we agree that each individual has the potential to contribute to the generation and application of knowledge that will help to foster their well-being and advance their communities and society as a whole, then we, rec we recognize that the centrality of education in cultivating true potential is really important, right? And every single human being needs to be part to partake in that. So then the principle of universal, universal education, I think, therefore, it goes beyond just a focus on infrastructure and access to educational institutions, but it would also involve ensuring that each individual is able to develop capabilities. So technical, social, moral, spiritual, all sorts of capabilities that will enable them to live meaningful lives um, and contribute to the advancement of society. So that's that at present, and I think this is in part due to the way technological tools have been developed in recent years, they play certainly play a role in this. Education grapples against being reduced to the transfer of just fragmented bits of information and facts um, that are simply absorbed or techniques that are acquired with little or no understanding of the concepts and the processes underlying them. So this is really, I think, one of the things that the lab is trying to explore further within the context of this principle of universal education. That's very helpful. I mean, I think it expands our view of this issue that we're discussing beyond, you know, I think what many of us experienced as parents uh, in the wake of the kind of lockdown, which was the use of technology somehow to kind of bring the school into the home. And this, this was kind of how we thought of the role of technology in education. But you've given us a broader way of thinking about both what education is and what technology is that maybe allows us to take an expanded view of, of this question. Now, zeroing in a bit more to the, the moment that we have found ourselves in, Brian uh, Cardis responded very quickly to this changed educational environment after the, the lockdown and produced a major research report on flexible education in an age of disruption. And in that report, uh, you know, it stated that the move to remote online-based instruction revealed deeper issues that preceded the crisis. And I wonder if you could talk about some of those deeper issues. Yeah, uh, thank you, Jeff. And, and Taban, that was, that was perfect. Uh, and I'm glad it's a perfect stage because I think what, what you're alluding to when you talk about technology being more than just gadgets, it's a representation of something uh, like a book, for instance, is a technology and there's a sense in which technology, um, again, bolstering Taban's point, is a manifestation of a certain moral framework in some ways, that there's, there's actually all kinds of studies about um, the way in which various uh, religions will make use or, make not, or will not make use of certain types of technologies uh, because they understand that it has a moral meaning. There's, uh, you know, the most 
Um, clear example of this is the, the Mennonite community, for instance. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Mennonite, but um, the Mennonite community is, is part of our, our body of faith. And they make, they're very serious about uh, what seems to us to be strange things, like why are you, why are you so concerned about having lights in the, uh, in the bedroom, for instance, which we, we say, what do you mean? You've got to see. They would say, look, no, if you have a light in the bedroom, it may mean you spend more time there reading and we no longer have the time to gather together as a family. So they understand that technology has profound moral uh, effects. It has a way to shape who you are, and it has the way to shape communities. Um, and one person I always like to, to read on this is a fellow named Jacques Ellul, who's um, uh, a philosopher of technology, and he, he has this list of 79 reasonable questions to ask about technology. And one of them is, what is it going to do to the person? What is it going to do to the community? And I think you saw a little bit of that in response to the shutting down of schools. There was this belief, and I don't know if it was articulated clearly or, or perfectly or not, but that in some sense, children were a lot like the computers they were using. It was simply a matter of putting them in front of the computer, downloading the information out of the teacher's head and putting it into the child's brain. But as Taban noted, that's not how knowledge works. Uh, knowledge is grown in a community of practice. Uh, and that's true for religions. That's true for trades. Uh, you know, a, a carpenter learns by working with an apprentice and a, ma a master and an apprentice. And that, that is more true for the sciences and uh, our other sort of bodies of knowledge than we might imagine. I think that's true for school as well. And so I, I would have liked to have seen more of that um, and I think what ended up happening was that assumption about the way that technology and education overlapped um, compounded and exacerbated um, some existing inequalities in our system. And I'll just mention a couple of them right off the hop. The first is just a, a pure economic inequality that if you did not have, uh, if you don't have the money for broadband that allows you to have Zoom calls like we're having right now, if you don't have a quiet room uh, to have broadband, uh, and to be able to sit in a room uh, and, you know, quietly learn your mathematics, your, your trig or whatever you're learning, uh, you, you would be a step back. You perhaps couldn't afford a computer. Um, you know, there are all kinds of, and, and I think we saw, you know, there's quite a bit of evidence to say that those who are on the lower economic scale, a lower end of the economic scale, um, had, had extreme troubles in, in following uh, education in that regard. And I don't think that's a problem that's necessarily going to be solved by putting a computer in everyone's hand. So the other thing to note is that those moral assumptions about the structures of our, of our gaining knowledge, which is to some extent definition of technology, are also present in the policy structures that, that enable us to do um, uh, education together. And so our assumption of universal education has in many ways uh, become equated just with the ability to go to school. I think that's, that's the fact that everyone goes to school and so on. But we've lost, I think, a sense in which education is a multifaceted uh, thing that requires communities that enable and support that, that other thing. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to, love to talk more about the nature of how learning and, and knowledge is actually developed. The community of practice one is, is one that I think is extremely important. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I actually want to carry on from there in my question to Hoda. You, know, you you kind of talked about the ways in which you know the underlying assumption maybe of this move to online education was that you know a teacher could be simply placed in the home via a screen um, and that instruction could continue kind of uninterrupted. 
But I think as any parent or teacher knew before and has also learned since, online instruction requires a lot of support from parents or grandparents or other volunteers. So Hoda, I mean, to the extent that technology and this particular kind of technology is used in education, how does the social environment of students come to influence the learning process itself? It's something that Brian reflected on a bit, but I wonder if you could kind of continue along that line. Yeah, if we think of uh, education, as um, Taban had noted, as one in which individuals are becoming more and more capable of living meaningful lives, lives that are not only enabling themselves to become enriched and developed as individuals, but that the social environment around them is also becoming enriched, that they're able to contribute to that, and that uh, to do that, one needs to be capable of of something <laughs> like they're, they're, uh, to be able to act meaningfully on the world requires more than just information. It requires more than just knowledge. It also requires certain attitudes that we learn when we're like interacting with one another. It requires spiritual qualities that manifest themselves and express themselves in the way that we speak, in the way that we relate to one another. It requires skills. It, it does require information and, and knowledge too, but I think all of those things together combine allow us to be capable at um, consulting or capable of like flying an airplane really anything that we can think of doing that requires capacity requires all of these things and when we look at it that way it becomes very hard to reduce that process to just an online exchange between a teacher and and a student um of course, it's not Im impossible to see how technology could be used because I think another challenge is when we too easily like equate the process of education to the built environment and most specifically the, the, the physical school. So once we weren't able to walk into a physical school, our whole process of education was kind of like uh, thrown upside down. But that's kind of interesting. Like, well, is, is education solely, is so closely connected to a, a built environment, to a, to a, to a school, um, to a physical physical place? And I think in that way, um, some, something that sometimes helps me is being able to distill what are some of the like essential elements of the process of education. One thing that comes to mind is, well, there's, there's a student, there's the individual, there's the curriculum, the, the content that that individual is interacting with and then trying to apply uh, to the world around them. And there's the instructor, there's the teacher. And what what is the relationship between these three these three elements? What would what would be a healthy relationship between them? And if we're focused on the on the relationship and and those kind of three essential elements of the process of education, then then maybe we could ask: Could that process continue in other settings, in in a park, or? out online or in a building when it's safer to go inside to do so. So then when we think of like the, the social environment, Jeff, that you were describing that mediates all of that, I think one thing that I think everybody noticed is how much actually communities and families can play a more meaningful role. I think I've never collaborated so much more, so much with my daughter's teacher as I have through the months of March to June. 
And that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. It kind of, although we kind of felt that it was in some ways very much, um, I don't want to use the word burden, but it, it put quite a pressure on uh, caregivers and the family unit. I think it also opened up possibilities for us to reimagine the relationship between a school and a family or a school and a community and what possibilities exist for families to, to be in a conversation with their teachers about the education of their children and contribute to the way in which uh, they can. So we've talked at this point about uh, the, the role that the community plays, uh, the institutions of schools and libraries, uh, built environment. Um, to some extent, we've discussed public policy, but I want to come now sort of zero in a bit more to the individual. So Taban, your own research has been focused on technology and consciousness among those in the early years, with a particular focus on indigenous populations. It's a very interesting area of research. Um, I wondered if you could talk about how technology shapes consciousness and how that relates to the educational process, and more specifically, to the extent that you can say what issues come to light for Indigenous youth in particular in their relationship with technology. Actually, you know, I think I'm as keen as you are to better understand how technology shapes consciousness. It, it's the focus of my research and dissertation, and I'm just beginning to embark on that journey. So I, you know, I have just a little bit of experience from living for nine years. I live in um, Snanaimo territory, which is just in the middle of Vancouver Island um, in this city called Nanaimo. So I've been able to form and build relationships there as I raise my children and strive to contribute to community life along the families of in Indigenous heritage here. Um, so actually the Indigenous communities here, they're from all over Vancouver Island. So there's a number of um, different Indigenous um, you know, communities that are represented here in Sinemo territory. So these are just some initial thoughts that have come from like my engagement in community. And we've also done some, you know, very simple community-based action research initiatives um, just as part of, you know, the lab that I mentioned I'm part of. Um, so for one thing, I found that the concept of consciousness, it actually holds a certain meaning here. It seems that consciousness is not only just knowledge of oneself and what leads to our progress and our regress, and it's not just also a general like perception of oneself in relation to others, which we sometimes, you know, talk about when we refer to consciousness. But here there's sort of um, an acute awareness of the many relationships that are part of the fabric of community life. So and that often um, extends beyond just the nuclear and extended family. So families are, you know, very interrelated um, and really community plays a very big part, which I'm very lucky to be accepted in the community in that in such a community um, so if in that context if we look at technologies that have been wholeheartedly embraced for the past decade or so by many cultures including the ones I live among um, so like digital tools like smartphones and tablets and laptops the things that we were referring to earlier um, that like and even with their corresponding applications because it's also hardware and software tools we must pause and like reflect on the fact that their features have by and large been designed with the individual 
adult consumer in mind. And that's something that's really somehow very important, each one of those aspects. Um, so for instance, if you take a smartphone, which a vast majority of young people I know carry and use, this device was not designed for educational purposes. Um, it was designed for actually for business purposes. Um, and oftentimes distraction and addiction are major components um, and the means for ensuring their viability in the technology market. So really, um, when you take a smartphone, um, and even while it's helped young people to stay connected with one another, um, the elements of distraction and addiction I refer to are actually very difficult to combat. And really, like if you think about, for instance, like social media apps with the corresponding effects of depression and anxiety and other outcomes that a fair bit of research has already been carried out and has shown, um, these are some of the things that a lot of young people actually um, are dealing with. And actually, more than ever in my conversations with young people and with the pandemic really forcing many young people into further isolation, um, I found that in those conversations, I hear very often um, the spontaneous mention that they long to undo habits related to social media addiction, um, which I find very fascinating. It wasn't something that came up um, pre sort of pandemic, you know, as frequently as it has. So within that backdrop, we've experienced a period where our systems of education have had to rely heavily on digital tools. So that period of March till June, I think across the country, everyone sort of had to, you know, move their education online. And we had to rely on these digital tools and the Internet to educate the masses of young people. So I think this is really the challenge that we're facing as a society then, is if we are relying more heavily on these technologies, how are we um, actually firstly considering those technologies and their use, and then also maybe thinking about the development of different forms of technologies that will actually help with our education. So what my research intends to focus on is a grassroots endeavor to walk alongside the community as its members consider and reconsider the historical wealth of their own technologies. Um, so consult about the integration of current technologies into their own education, and even open doors to developing new tools and methods that promote the values they wish to perpetuate. So I think that's sort of in line with ultimately thinking that the capacity for technological assessment, innovation, and adaptation must be fostered within a people themselves um, and really needs to be taken ownership at that level. Tavon, you're like a sister on the other side of the... Uh, of the <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm, sit, I'm sitting here just saying in my heart, oh yes, keep going. This, this a couple. Of, I, I think uh, just on that very last point you make, one of the challenges, and I, I'm doing a lot of work on the public policy side of this, but one of the challenges I think with our current education approach, which is quite frankly unlike an education in many other places around the world, is that when we think of community, we think and education, we only think about the state. And I, I think that there is um, there are countless other examples in which the one political community actually provides space, ground, funding, and structures for other communities within that broader political community to educate their children in particular ways to explore some of those things that Tavon noted, different ways of, of educating, different ways of using technology. A case in point is the Netherlands, um, which is where my mother is from. Uh, she's an immigrant here. 
Um, but in the Netherlands, if you are a Christian or you're Baha'i or if you are interested in Montessori or Waldorf or if you want to explore outdoor education, you have a different vision for education that you think would be good and you have a community of neighbors and, and people with you, the state will provide uh, support for you in that regard. There are still, of course, appropriate regulations and, and you know, people need to read and write and there are certain things that are... But the diversity and plurality is, is far, far greater than it is in Canada. And, um, and I think technology is one of that, uh, one of those things. There are increasingly people who are realizing what Tabans uh, just noted, that the technologies that are given to us and that, that often are given to those big communities that can make big purchasing decisions, so that's the government, places like Google and so on. And they, don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a user and they do all those things. But they're designed, uh, it's, it's a, um, uh, an article that we published in comment is called Habits of Mind in an Age of Distraction. And the author, Alan Jacobs, cites somebody who says that we, ha- we live in an ecosystem of disruptive attention, the, the whole ecosystem in which we're working. And there are communities, and like you, Jeff, I remember you noting uh, in your letter to the editor, which I think spurred this, uh, this conversation, you said, maybe we want to think about other um, other types of ecosystems in which we want to work. Perhaps we want to um, spend more time outdoors. As my In my children's school, we spend a lot of time outside observing nature. Maybe we want to spend more time in quiet contemplation. Uh, maybe, we, you know, sports, you, know, you could name it. There are a variety and diversity of, of communities within this country. And I think it's time for us to, to allow those communities to sort of bloom and educate um, because I think the, the current structure, and this is particularly true for Indigenous communities, it, it, it just, it, it shunts and asks people to put aside those parts of their identity as they enter this school where they receive information and then leave um, like they are themselves a, a computer chip you can put a USB in. And I just don't think that's in line with, with the way humans actually are. Yeah, Brian, I wonder if I could just follow up on this a bit further. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that you send your children to independent schools that you were just describing, uh, like a diverse ecosystem of schooling that can be reflective of the many different kinds of communities that exist in Canada. And I'm just referring back to Tavon's observation that technologies are are tools that become inscribed with values, not to put words in your mouth to bond, but this is what I understood. Do they become tools that are inscribed with values and then in turn propagate those values? And it, it may be that schools that are independent from the public system, um, especially that are trying to articulate a set of values or worldview, may be more conscious of the role that technology plays or the values that it can carry. And so I wanted to ask you what you think the public schooling system could learn from the technological choices being made in independent schools or in homeschool environments? That's a great question. I think they could learn just by the very existence of it that a school uh, that is so-called private now is actually public. Um, It is part of the public. You know, I'm a citizen. My children are citizens. Uh, They contribute to the public good. Our studies have shown that independent school graduates contribute uh, much more in terms of volunteering charities contributing to the communities than the typical public school. And I think one of the reasons for that is they understand it, what it means to be part of community that has certain commitments that it holds together. So w- with regard to how that works itself out technologically, probably the best place to start is actually, this is going to sound very technical, but actually just getting outside. Um, I think there's a, there's a room for us to learn to observe 
that which is beyond our head. There's a really great book by a fellow named Matthew Crawford who talks about what does it mean to become an individual. And he says, you actually have to have an encounter uh, with something that is beyond your head. And I think the ability for children to spend out time out of doors, uh, observing things that, quite frankly, other communities, including the Indigenous community, does a lot better, uh, would be a place to start. Very good. Thank you, Brian. Hoda, I want to now turn to you to look back at the role that community plays, just building on these observations about how schooling can become reflective of, of community. You know, the role that devices have played, screens, phones, uh, computers, as we've all observed in the course of this conversation, has generally conduced to greater isolation. Uh, you know, it's been associated with the rise in depression and in uh, poor mental health outcomes for, for young people. So, you know, we now live at a time where we're having this discussion about how schooling can be delivered using devices and screens. Parents and families and communities play an important mediating role or countervailing role in the lives of, of children. Often, you know, as parents, we're one of the main discussions we're having is, you know, how much screen time children, our children should have, how much is healthy. So maybe the question that I want to ask you is, you know, when we're considering how much schooling should be done online, what is the role of parents and families and communities in helping education to remain embedded in society, embedded in community, rather than just another thing that happens on a screen online? Yeah, no, that's a really, it's a really helpful question to think about. And I think I've just, just hearing all of uh, your reflections and comments uh, just has really kind of shaped a little bit uh, what I think maybe communities and families and, and parents can do. And I think not to sound uh, very bleak, because I think also when we talk about like technology, young people, education, there is also a little bit of a of a of a tendency to describe like worst case scenarios and and whatnot. So I don't want to like feed into that conversation. Um, but then at the same time, I also feel that uh, with the with the pandemic and us as families and as communities experiencing this thing called school or our educate this aspect of education online, it just seems that increasingly uh, so much of what um, we need as human beings and what we traditionally would have gotten by being um, with in the company of others, we seem to be substituting for online interactions. I think at the end of the day, it's a little bit what happens online is the, is the numbing of thought and the, the ability to, to, to be able to think. So then how much I think parents and families and communities can play a role when it comes to just having meaningful conversations with, with one another, with our children, where we're actually encouraging thought, thoughtful reflection, articulation of thought, um, the, the sharing of ideas, the exploration of a certain idea, a, an experience, because um, so much of what is going on in our own minds and in the minds of a young person is increasingly being filled with what they're what they're uh, being exposed to online. So if you could, even for a split second, just for the sake of like an example, quantify thought and say, okay, if there's a hundred thoughts in my head, 
what percentage of them is coming from all of these outlets? And what are the, like the, the moral underpinnings of what uh, is being said? What is the view of the individual? What is the view of society? What is the view, view of the community? And let's say that's, that is now forming 70% of my thought is coming from here. Okay, so in our conversations, in our interactions with others, can that become a little bit less? You know, can it, can, can it be 60%, 50%? Because I think there's a, there's a reality to it. Sometimes when I put my daughter to sleep, and this might end up becoming a reflection of my bad parenting, but I'm going to give the example anyway. She's lying there and she's just like so thoughtful. Like she's just lying there so thoughtfully. She's not yet asleep. And I'm, I ask her, I'm like, what are you thinking about, Lua? And, you know, sometimes she says really beautiful, meaningful things. And other times she says, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about octonauts. And I'm like, octonauts? Like it never even occurred to me that like, the TV show she watched this afternoon is in her thoughts, you know, and it's what's, it's the thought that's being replayed, you know, and what does, what does, what effect does that have if like increasingly what my child is interacting with is in that, is in kind of that category of content, you know, and so it's just something that uh, I think sometimes as a parent, we we wish to not see the effects of because it can feel quite overwhelming. And the reality is technology is so in, embedded in our own lives and the lives of our children that we, we don't want to feel despair in, 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 the, in the situation at hand. And we want, on the contrary, to be hopeful and to be um, empowered to take steps. Um, and so maybe one of those first steps that we can take, of course, conversation, consultation with our families, with those that we're closest with acting with will always um, allow us to see what our next steps are together. But also we don't need to maybe feel like we all need to be like, you know, trained, you, you know, trained certified educators to be able to, to, to counteract this um, tendency where not only just education, everything around us is, is more and more being embedded online versus in, in our in our uh, human interactions and in our communities and in our wider society, our, our cities. Um, and that maybe one of those like first steps that we can begin to take are, are, are meaningful conversations with, with one another that's allowing us to explore ideas that extend beyond octonauts and <laughs> Paw Patrol. <laughs> For, you know, if we're thinking of a five, six-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has felt like one of those meaningful conversations to me. Um, I wonder if any of you would like to offer any final closing comments. Brian, I saw your hand up. Yeah, I, I just, Hoda, again, I feel like you're a sister. I, I, I'm listening to you and I'm saying yes. I, I'm Jeff, I'm just so grateful for this, this conversation and to meet Tavan and, and Hoda. I, I think this is one thing that's a very, um, it's, it's going to be highly controversial in our public se setting. But what Hoda just described is the types of habits that, that make up and shape the character, right? The constant, the thing you, you become the thing you think about when you're thinking about nothing else. That's, that's, um, and if it's octonauts, and there's nothing against octonauts, Mike. Nothing. You know, I, and so, and please don't, I feel the same way. I'm totally with you on that type of thing. But what if, what if instead, and, and, and one of the reasons is because that becomes a habit. We do that. We engage that show. It's this time I want my screen time. It's like time to watch something on the screen or in the school. We're going to do this now. And that becomes, that shapes your person. We, are, it, we have this deep, 
deep desire for our hearts to be, um, and not everyone, there are atheists, and I would like to give them freedom as well, but human beings are, are spiritual. And um, whether you're Baha'i or Muslim or Jewish, every one of those traditions, Christians, has this tradition of habits of prayer, habits of mind, you know, being mindful or, or patient or, or reflecting. And that makes us human beings too. It makes us the type of human beings who can engage with our neighbors and disagree with one another in the political sphere and with charity and with, with justice focused. And yet when it comes to our education, um, you know, in the system, what we spend billions of dollars upon or, and, and that we spend much of our children's, you know, the first, even the first fifth of one's life, if you're lucky enough to be given a hundred years, that's, it's absent. The, 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 even the thinking of how does one, how does one shape one's spiritual character is absent. And so I keep thinking to myself, how does one address that and fill that? Well, I wouldn't want the state doing it. Again, it's one of those things. I don't want the state telling people to pray the Lord's Prayer. I think it's, it's, it's wrong. It's not, it's not the way, you know, religion has to be, um, it, can only be uh, it can only be proposed. It can't be imposed. People have to, you know, embrace it. But I, I do find that worrying that, that we are unwilling to, you know, even with indigenous communities and what have you, we begin to worry about um, any sort of thing that may be on this sort of technical knowledge transfer. And I think that's a, that's a loss for our society. And I think it's a loss for our children. And, um, you know, it's a long way from talking about octonauts, but I think it just highlights the fact that there's, there's that need for, for depth and meaning that, that our schools are thus far not, not capable of, of providing. Yeah, Brian, I agree because, is it okay, Jeff, if I, yeah. if I ch- chime in? Because it's one thing to see um, religion as practice and so then, then we get into we we can recognize that that is is quite diverse, and we're we're not able to maybe um, you know impose one particular practice uh, on another. The, the example you gave that you wouldn't want actually everyone to have to say uh, you know a prayer that they that they don't that's not really a true reflection of like what their their heart and soul is thinking. But when we think of maybe religion and this is tying back into to Taban's earlier point as like a system of knowledge. Well, what, what kind of knowledge can religion provide us? Part of what it helps us do is understand human nature. Like, who are we as human beings? Like, when we say that human beings are resilient, well, where, where does that come from? Like, how, how could it be that um, we could recognize so many powers that come from the human spirit but yet fail to connect it to the very soul that's giving that human spirit uh, those, those, those spiritual powers, powers of resilience, powers of compassion, power of love. And so I think with education, it's particularly lamentable because when we're not able to recognize the spiritual dimension, the spiritual nature of a human being, then the practice of education, which is to educate that human being, just misses a whole dimension of of what can be nurtured within an individual to make them so much 
more capable at then contributing to an environment in which all of us could could prosper. So even if we just set aside that conversation for a little a bit and say, okay, no, we're we're not talking about um, religious practice pr- practices that you know that that are rooted in in the diversity which is, which is Canada. Let's actually just look at the 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 young person who is. Who we're saying that we hope is educated is becoming educated. Well, what what kind of education is suitable for for a human being that um, is is not only uh, not only a social being, not only a physical being, but but also a, a spiritual being? What, what what kind of effect would it have on the way that we we um, conceptualize education? Thanks, Hora. Taban, do you have any closing reflections to share? No, just simply an acknowledgement of what you both have mentioned, just how much I appreciated hearing from both of you. And really, you do feel like a brother, Brian. Yes, very much. (laughs) So thank you so much. It's been such a joy to get to hear from your thoughts and your explorations. Yeah, also. Well, thanks all three of you for participating in this conversation today. Um, It's been illuminating and enlightening. And I hope you'll convey my gratitude to your families and children as well, who I know are around, even though we can't see them behind you right now. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. It's an honor. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.